Yo, BJ, super happy to have you back, man. It's been a long time, and yeah, dude, this sounds like an awesome session. Nothing wrong with being rusty, man. That happens after a while. It's just good you all were able to get back uh, and just get after it. That fight with the door sounds fun. Like that, <laughs> I love when players do that stuff, and it's just like, okay, so now the fight is actually who controls whether the door is open or not. That's probably not what you were expecting to happen. And yeah, man, that stuff's fun. Sounds great. Hope uh, hope you're able to get a few games in a row going so you know you don't lose inertia because that can happen. But anyway, man, glad you're feeling better. And I will talk to you again soon. Peace out. Hi, I'm BJ, and this is the Arcane Alienist Podcast. That was Joe Richter from the Hindsightless podcast. Uh, be sure and check him out. Thanks, Joe, for the welcome back. Yeah, that was a really fun session. And uh, I'm going to field some calls for this episode. Got one short topic to talk about at the end. Um, but you'll hear some other comments from a couple other callers coming right up. See you later, Joe. Hey, BJ Jason here. Just caught up on your episodes. As far as trademark games or these licensed properties multiple editions yeah there aren't too many out there of course tsr's marvel superheroes made it through multiple editions or at least you had the basic version the advanced version and i think there was a like a revised one down the road same thing merp with ice had a first second edition and we had the same thing with um Western game Star Wars, effectively three editions, right? A first, a second, a revised. And, um, well, of course, that's the only Star Wars RPG, in, in my canon at least. But I think the worst thing with these IPs are the fact that once that IP moves on somewhere else, once that license is lost, all you can do is buy used copies of that game. You know, so PDFs or anything else can't be sold anymore. And, and so it's lost forever to anybody that can't find an old copy. Hey, Jason, you're, you're absolutely right about, you know, when the IP changes hands, you, you lose an entire edition or an entire version of a game, uh, and you're looking for used copies, or, um, you know, if anybody scanned it, it's not transferable unless the, the company itself is making PDFs uh, available legally online, which you can get through drive through RPG with some of them and some of them not, but I know a lot of those really old ones... You aren't. And I think you point out something I overlooked that, <clears throat> yeah, in the 80s, you would get new additions and revisions and expansions from the, from the company on some of those IPs. But that's just not, <clears throat> doesn't seem to be what we're getting anymore because they change hands so fast. Um, so, you know, and maybe with, with, you know, Marvel doing an in-house, publishing their own role-playing game, they'll just keep it there and continue to revise and improve it instead of the handing out the IP again 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 and again to different publishers. But um, I was watching a recent review of the Witcher role-playing game, which has been out a couple of years now. Um, but I thought it was interesting that the Witcher had its own licensed role-playing games because if you actually read, at least I noticed when I read the, uh, the book series, how much that's influenced by D&D. You can see just it just jumps right out. Uh, particularly if you're familiar with BX or basic D&D &D or original D&D &D prior to 
you know, AD&D coming out, the taxonomy of dragons in the Witcher universe is very much a D&D. They're chromatic. And then the gold is the most powerful, but it's the only metallic type of dragon. Um, and the other little tidbits, particularly in the short stories before the novel, the big epic takes off, that really show you, you know, it would be a heck of a coincidence if um, he wasn't, the author was influenced by the you know, basic D&D or, or early D&D, um, even though the tone of the, the series is a little more dark and, and grim, you know, people may more aptly compare the tone to Warhammer, but there's a lot of D&Disms in those books. <laughs> anyway, um, I think that's all I have to say about IP. We'll put this topic to rest um, with one final observation, which is the licensing has kind of reversed. I was thinking about that in regards to The Witcher, that that seems like it would be ideal to be licensed as a D&D setting because of those origins that are real apparent. Um, but it's got its own game. And uh, you know, it used to be, you know, TSR, I guess it was back TSR was was the big dog, and it was a major game publisher, not just of D&D, but other stuff. But I, I remember, you know, you had Lankmar, uh in D&D, you had a Conan supplement for D&D. I mean, even, you know, some of, some of the other classic uh, games we think about. Um, um, Empire of the Petal Throne was, was created as a sub, you know, be played and use D&D to play it. Uh, if I remember correctly, Rollmaster really grew out of a, just an alternative combat system to make D&D combat a little more granular. I could be misremembering that, and I'm sure Jason will correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, but, but Wizards of the Coast is not licensing other people's intellectual property to make D&D versions their, their own. I mean, the, the, the supplements they put out the last few years were Magic the Gathering, where you play D&D in the Magic the Gathering planes. Um, but it's not looking at things like The Witcher or... Um, you know, other fantasy, popular fantasy settings that could make for a D&D setting, and I'm sure people are doing it as homebrew. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, although, to be fair, I need to min min mention that Matt Mercer created a, his Blood Hunter class for 5e. There's a version, Order of the Mutant, that is basically the Witcher. So you can play Witchers in D&D using those supplemental rules. Um, and even though it's not official Wizards of the Coast content, it's kind of... Um, Anything related to Mercer and Critical Role and, and his setting, I think it's it's only not official D and D by technicality, and even one of their books is official five E D and D. Anyway, so I think that's a, probably about enough on IP. It's a lot of interesting observations just on how how the hobby has changed with the way it handles licensing and IP and different editions of the games and things like that. So. Um, but here we go. Jason's got a thought on another matter. As far as announcing your intention prior to rolling initiative, it's interesting. I was, I've been trying to catch up on some YouTube stuff since I've had a little bit of time off and watching some of Daniel's stuff over Bandit's Keep. He has one on D&D Combat that's worth watching. And he um, talks about, you know, declaring intent before rolling initiative. And how he really not only does he think that speeds up combat, he you know he's he's a big proponent of that it seems, and I'm a, I personally like that as well. I like the idea of declaring intent before rolling initiative and before you know, 
anybody doing anything. But I know plenty of people do not like it because they complain, well, if you and I both said we're going to shoot at that, the head orc and you kill the head orc, then my character loses his action. Well, I guess you should have rolled better initiative, huh? I don't know. Thoughts on that? I think you're bringing up some good points. And uh, interesting you mentioned Daniel because I got a call from Daniel to, to, to round up the, the call-ins of this episode here in just a minute. But, um, yeah, we're uh, because we're doing group initiative, I actually don't think that's a bad idea to just have everybody declare actions. And if your action is anything other than casting a spell or full retreat, then you get your move and your melee attack, range attack, whatever else you, you can incorporate into your turn. Um, since we're doing groups, and as people kind of declare their actions, they I would obviously give them the chance to say, "Oh wait, well if you're gonna if you're gonna attack that guy, I'm gonna attack somebody else. I'll I'll change my mind. Once everybody's locked and loaded, then we'll roll initiative." Um, and I think that's probably been my intention in the past, and I just forget to do it because uh, again, I'm still kind of getting back used to to this style of kind of action economy with initiatives and things like that. So, uh, good point. Thanks, Jason. And for everybody, uh, that is Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Be sure and check out his podcast here on Anchor as well. Hey, BJ. Daniel from Bandit's Keep. Good to hear you back. Um, as far as the, the cleric not being able to move and cast, you know, the other uh, players should remember that they can move as well. <laughs> you know, because you're eating up an, an entire basically two rounds of cleric action, making them move um, and then cast... Although they can move attack and then cast the next round as opposed to the cleric would run up next to the fighter, smack uh, the monster in the head with their mace, and then cast the next round. But of course, them being a melee, that, now they're risking losing that spell. So it probably is a lot smarter, especially with a big uh, group, to have the uh, the injured PC you know retreat back to where the clerics are. If you're going to use them as healers, that is. <laughs> of course, now I'm listening to the session recap, and I guess they couldn't move back to the cleric. I wonder, though, if you're, uh, they drop to zero hit points, they have a round to get healed, promotes the healers waiting until people drop before they heal them. Uh, is it only if they hit exactly zero, or is it no matter how negative it is? I'm, I'm curious about how you do that. But anyway, just a thought. But it's, I'm in the middle of the recap right now, but it sounds like a really fun adventure. Hey, Daniel. Um, yeah, I think this was the first fight they had where thought they were facing kind of a little tougher, better organized opponents. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think the maybe the they are going to negative hit points. So I, I did see that sort of waiting, kind of like the cleric's going to come heal me. Um, or just if we die, we die because <laughs> it's BX and they're still first level. Um, and and I, the, the casters are still, I think, getting used to that, having to remember I can't move and cast at the same time. We've got to have some tactical... Um, planning when when it comes up between rounds about well, what are we going to do to you know I'm getting close to zero maybe you should go ahead and, and move so you can heal me next round or um, you know whether it's a tactical retreat or having the clerics kind of move into position to the second rank to to heal people um, but I, I think as a group they're still kind of getting their still looking for their stride on how they kind of operate as a team on that. Um, I think it does make a very interesting tactical choice, which I like, where a cleric has to say, okay, do I go up and make a melee attack and hope that we win initiative next round so I can heal this person? Um, Or do we kind of work where somehow 
people can kind of backpedal with a full retreat because you can declare that as an action and, and take that move back to where the cleric is. Uh, and so there's all kinds of, I think, tactical options in there that I like. That Of course, that's on the players to figure out and make, not on me to tell them what to do. Um, so, And we did go to in this fight to negative hit points. So I guess theoretically it's possible that a cleric could uh, not be able to heal you back up to full, if, depending on how much damage you took. Um, you know, the BX rules just say at zero you're dead, and I kind of added that house rule. Well, you got a round for someone to kind of do something to, to mitigate that. Um, and uh, I think we all the players just assume they went into negative hit points, although I don't know if I ever firmly established whether you just stop at zero or go negative. Um, and, of course, there's implications there. If you, if you go negative, that means that the cleric's healing spell only kind of maybe gets you back to one or two. If you stop at zero, that means that you could potentially spring back up to, you know, six or seven hit points, um, you know, once the cleric heals you. And, and that creates a different style of play. So I may, I may pose that to my players and see what they prefer or what they think because um, it does it does create different kind of standing tactics and procedures you would want to use as a team of, of PCs when you when you get into combat for how do you handle healing. Anyway, uh, but yeah, you um, always appreciate Daniel's calls. They're very insightful. So that's Daniel Norton of Bandit's Keep YouTube channel and podcast. So uh, something I didn't really talk about when I did my previous episode of Orcs, the, the mythic world of Erd was uh, an idea I had that orcs wear masks. Um, and, and it's somewhat like the um, the way that samurai would decorate their helmets with, with kind of masks that represented demons or oni to, to kind of project a more fearsome appearance. Um, I kind of thought about that. Uh, I thought about Lots of cultures use masks in uh, different types of ceremonial and, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, for other purposes. So I, I just kind of settled on this idea that, that it would be interesting if orcs wore masks. And, and one of the thoughts I've had about an origin for that is, even though orcs are, I'm using them as a playable race and they're part of the the same lineage as, as, as other mortal creatures. They're not underworld creatures. They're not otherworldly fey creatures. Um, is that there's a long history of conflict with the orcs. They still have that niche somewhat in the mythic world of Erd. Um, but when I was going through, uh, I think I did mention this, when I was going through and trying to find a niche or a place or a role for all the standard humanoids, um, one of them that I, I, I just couldn't find the right place for orcs because I didn't want them to be a, a just another type of goblinoid. Uh, and I really felt like gnolls might be the ones that, that really occupy that sort of, you know, bloodthirsty, destructive, you know, things that just come out of these these war bands or hordes and just lay waste to stuff. And, and, and th that would be a, a something occupied by gnolls. And so I kind of, again, as I, I think I'd mentioned, haven't, haven't read other, seen other portrayals of orcs, um, the, the, the novel Orcs by Stan Nichols, um, the way orcs are sort of handled in uh, Warcraft, that I thought, um, well, let's make them a, ostensibly a PC race, 
but let's have this history of where they're the ones that were the most contentious to, of, you know, maybe not everybody always gets along, which is classic fantasy, um, but, but the orcs are the ones that have the more, most history of contention with, with other people. And we started the campaign with, a you know, centuries ago, such conflict where the orcs had been brought under a powerful war leader who set his sights on conflict with everybody else. Um, but the origin of the masks, uh, another place I thought of that, I don't know if I'm, and I'm still fleshing this out as, as the you know, history is not written on this yet for the setting, was the idea that um, everybody wants to, and I get, again, I'm, I'm riffing on Stan Nichols' novel series from Orcs. Everybody kind of wants these guys around when it's time to have a fight because they're really good fighters, they're really good scouts and trackers and, and, and orienteering. So, so they're the kind of people you want in, in, in warfare. But as soon as the fight's over, and while these orcs are kind of ugly and, and uncouth and primitive and, and unsophisticated, now we don't want you around anymore. Take your gold and get gone. Um, and that evolved into the idea that, that maybe people do retain orcs on a longer-term basis, sometimes as bodyguards, as soldiers, as mercenaries in sort of long-term employ. Um, but make them wear these masks to hide their, their faces because, you know, they're, they're tusks and they're uh, snout-like noses and, and things like that. So, so you know, the orcs are going to be around polite society, they have to wear a mask. Um, and at some point, the orcs just sort of took that as a, kind of owned it. It was originally kind of a, a tool of oppression and discrimination, but as history has evolved and, and that that things have moved forward, a lot of that became sort of a, point of, uh, they, they just turned it into a point of cultural pride or a cultural relic. I'm not just going to wear this plain mask, I'm going to decorate it in ways that reflect uh, orcish history and orcish culture and, and orcish heritage and things like that. And so now it, it becomes sort of an act of defiance. And then eventually that just becomes just a cultural practice that they have, not, not necessarily, they might know the history of where that started and why they do it, but it's, now it's just a thing, orcs wear masks in battle. Um, Orcs wear masks when they're when they're acting in the role of a warrior or a hunter or, or anything like that. I know again I'm kind of shaping that out. I'd be interested to hear other people's thoughts on this. Um, so, yeah, orc masks. That's that's something I'm kind of working on slipping in. Uh, and I know the the player who's playing the, the one orc character right now in the in the game, you know, has a mask and and I think declared during our last game when they're. About to go into battle, well, he straps on his battle mask and he's ready to go. Uh, so, you know, we might continue to flesh out what the different meanings and origins of those masks are as, as I continue to, the campaign evolves and we do a little more world building, but um, I, I do like that idea, so I'm going to stick with it, but I, I might be interested in hearing other people's thoughts on how to make that real and meaningful as, uh, as we move forward. So, so there you go, Orton masks, that's kind of my I, and my work in progress that we're, we're working on for, for setting or maybe I can talk more about that in, in upcoming episodes as I get more ideas or more feedback or input suggestions and such and that's it for this episode of The Arcane Alienist I want to thank Dave Bone for the cover art that I use for the episodes check out ironseer.com and the music is Come and Get It by Scott Holmes Music uh, thank you for listening. Uh, give me a call sometime through the Anchor app or at the Anchor website. 
and I'll be back in the future with another episode.